Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. You can fight, and I've always believed this, that you can fight with all of your might, no matter what your cause is. And I have always thought that. I've always thought, whatever the cause is, I don't think you have to come from that community to be a credible warrior in that fight. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Robin Steinberg, a 1982 graduate of NYU Law and the executive director and co-founder of the Bronx Defenders. I'm so pleased to welcome you, Robin, and to share your experience here with us as a woman in the public defense community and tell us more about what you're calling the holistic defense movement. I'm really excited to hear more about that. So welcome. Thank you. First, because this is oriented around women, and you know a little bit about the backstory of this. I always start off with this. What was your experience in law school as a woman? So I actually came to law school because I wanted to do women's rights litigation. So I was extremely focused on um, my role as a woman, what it meant to be a feminist, what it meant to be a feminist with a you know, powerful tool like a law degree in my pocketbook, which I hope to have someday, and came to NYU because it actually had a clinical program that was focusing on women in prison. So I was very conscious of my role as a woman when I got to the law school. I made some great friends right away who were strong, dedicated, powerful women who I still know, um, who are doing great work in the world. And I didn't feel particularly marginalized as a woman when I got to NYU. I was uh, delighted to be in the school. I have to say that as I began to sit in class, I became less enamored of being in law school. I think that's probably an experience a lot of 1Ls have. And my response to that, the way I coped with that was I stopped going to class. That's Mm. just the truth. I didn't go to class very often. And as the years went on, I went to class less and less. You know, I was part of the law women, you know, group and was very actively involved there. Um, I was doing a lot of clinical work and I always went and did my clinical work, but I stopped going to the classroom. And I think in large measure, it was the environment in the classroom didn't feel nurturing. It didn't feel supportive. It didn't feel like it was opening up my mind. It felt like it was literally terrifying me every day. And it was an experience I didn't find the least bit helpful to my learning or or my humanity. So I stopped going. I found the Socratic method to be appalling. I found the sort of aggressive nature of being called on and humiliated in public something that I had a really tough time with. And um, so my response was to just kind of not go. That's bold. I don't know if it was bold. It it felt just like that was the way I was going to preserve myself. Yeah, so um, it wasn't maybe bold, but it was self-preservation. I think that's okay. right. I think that's right. I like that. So you yeah. recognize, in a way, that is kind of bold. It's a recognition. I'm a big fan of creating self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we do things because we think we have to. Mm-hmm. And I see it very often in young law students. Yep. They just kind of like plug along terrified because they think they have to do it a certain way. And for you to make that decision, that self-preservation choice, it's like, what? This isn't nourishing my intellectual life, and this isn't helping me be better. I am not going on the record to say, you shouldn't go to class. (laughs) Nor am I, actually. You know, I think now, I think I could probably go to a law school class and I would have an incredibly engaging experience. But I, that's because I found my voice and I'm comfortable in my own skin and I believe in the things I believe in and I'm willing to stand up for them. And But as a young law student, I wasn't that woman yet. I was sort of, I'm rebellious in my DNA. That's true. But my sense of self-confidence about being in a school like NYU and, and with that kind of prestige and status certainly suffered. And my sense of entitlement to it wasn't there or that I could do it. So I tended to shy away from it and find sort of the clinical world, which I found to be much more consistent with who I was and much more nurturing of the things I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not to say there weren't some great professors who, you know, whose class I really enjoyed. But those big lecture classes where you got called on, I mean, you know, I still remember like it was yesterday, the day that I got called on in contracts and passed. And there was like dead silence in the room. Um, And the professor said, you don't get to pass. I said, I just did. I, I, you know, it just wasn't, I, I couldn't 
really function in that world very well. Um, and it's funny because I wound up being a trial lawyer and I wound up being somebody who can who could stand up in court and try cases and be questioned on the moment. So it didn't have anything to do with that. It just was not a good style for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This wasn't a case of just like build me up buttercup. This was a case of this is really not going to grow me intellectually. This is not going to grow me as a professional. Right. And that my response to fear is to shut was to shut down. Mm-hmm. And that I literally like everything all I thought about while I was sitting in class was am I going to get called on? Mm-hmm. That's literally that from the beginning of the class to the end of the class. And so I was completely incapable of engaging in the ideas that were going on. So I would go home and I would diligently do my work. I would read all the case books. I would talk. To, I would join a study group with other people and diligently stay engaged in the coursework because I thought it was important to do that. But being in the classroom was something that I found upending. I love the idea that you recognized in yourself that you were that you are a little subversive that you have that little resistance in you. Thank God we need more of that these days. Before we get to that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that, stick a pin in it. Um, you said something interesting about coming to law school. You mentioned your pocketbook. Coming to law school, you wanted to have that degree in your pocket, mm-hmm. and you wanted to have that as part of your pocketbook. Mm-hmm. That sounds to me like the power of money also. I don't know. I didn't think about it as the power of money. When I was in college, I went to UC Berkeley and I studied women's studies. Mm -hmm. And it was a very new field. I was one of the first in the graduating class at Berkeley in women's studies. There were eight of us who graduated. And I knew that what I wanted to do was fight for women's rights. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure how I was going to do that. I just knew it was the thing I was going to do. And I was very pragmatic. I was a, you know, extremely pragmatic young person. And um, I thought, well, how do you best do that? You could become an academic and teach women's studies, which would have been interesting. Or you can do something where you feel like you can have more impact. And what I recognized was from afar was, wow, a law degree seems to give you power. Mm. and credibility Mm -hmm. and a platform, right, to stand on and to speak out. And so that really was the road that took me to law school, was a very pragmatic one, which is I wanted to go to school. I wanted to get this piece of paper. This piece of paper would give me some credibility, some power, and a platform that I didn't think I could otherwise have. And so it was never about the money, but it certainly was about how can I be most impactful and how will I have the most credibility in what was then a relatively new field. Of course, the irony is I came to law school thinking I was going to do women's rights litigation, and then I spent the next... 35 years defending the majority of men. Right. That's a whole nother story, but but I certainly, you know, found my my passion at law school. I th- um, thank you. I that was I just was curious about that because you referred to you mentioned that word specifically pocketbook and that one caught my attention. Subversiveness. Public defense isn't an area that you fall into. You came into it with this uh, you know, you have rebel bones, I would say. You didn't fall into this by chance. You didn't fall into women's studies by chance. Can you talk a little bit about your, not only your life as a public defender, but where did that come from? Where did that grow out of? So I've asked myself that question for 60 years. You know, here's what I know about myself. I was uh, a rebellious kid. Mm -hmm. I was growing up at a time when the civil rights movement and the feminist movement was, you know, wildly ignited around this country. I was captivated by it. I was the kid who got on the bus early in the morning and went down to Washington, D.C. at a way too young an age and, you know, stood at the Washington Monument and protested the Vietnam War. I was the kid in summer camp that got thrown out because I wouldn't salute the flag because wow. we were in the Vietnam War. And I can't tell you why at the age of 11 that was appropriate, but at the age of 11, I knew that's what I wanted to do. What was your household like that this was embraced, tolerated, allowed? You know, my parents were not politically active, and it certainly wasn't coming from there, I, I, so I don't really know. I mean, I think my, my mother would say I was always rebellious. I was rebellious f- always, but I, I think I was more caught up. I think it was a combination of being caught up in the moment of the times and being really influenced by the times. I think it was partly for all sorts of personal and family reasons I felt more like an outsider than I did like an insider always. Mm-hmm. And that sense of outsiderness, I think, drove a little bit of my identification with marginalized groups and my belief in needing to defend marginalized groups, even though I don't belong to a marginalized group, except for obviously my status as a woman, but but not really in that way that the certainly the criminal justice system marginalizes. That's not my community. But it's a place that I felt where I thought my effort should be put. And I always felt that way. 
and so I like to joke, and, and I've said this before, it's, you know, I'm the person that would watch a football game. Yes, I like football, which is appalling to most people, but I do. And I would watch a football game, and, you know, the team that I was rooting for all of a sudden would be winning by a huge number. And I would feel myself start to switch my allegiance to the other team. You were pulling for the underdog. Honestly. And and that's <laughs> oh, and I'm still that way, by the uh-huh. way. Um, and so at some point, and, you know, when I was raising my kids, you know, and I'd say to my son, who was an athlete, I'd say to my son, okay, but you guys are winning by like 40 points. You should stop now. Yeah. And he would look at me like I was crazy. That's just not right. Like, and I'd start rooting for the other team. So I have always sort of had that sense in me. And and where that comes from, whether that's my personal family story, whether that's my, just my character, whether that's the times that I was growing up in, I think it's a combination I would have said years ago that it was strictly political. I think the older I get, the more I realize that the personal and the character and the family mm-hmm. and, the, and the actual political all work um, to drive you in a particular direction. And I think all of those things sort of worked to really drive me into, a, I know, at least a field where I was going to be representing marginalized groups. If nothing else, you're reassuring me. I have I happen to have one very rebellious little granddaughter, and it always makes me happy when I think, you know, there's a reason that a three-year-old saying, why, but why? I don't want to do that. Why? I don't want to do that. I want to wear this shirt backwards, because that's the kid who's going to change the world. Right, exactly. And you should encourage everything about that in her, even though it's really hard to raise that, um, I'm sure. So yeah, so I think, so certainly rebellion in my DNA was just where I was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where that took me could have taken me a lot of places. To be quite honest, I wasn't I wasn't a good student. I wasn't a happy student growing up. I am surprised I got out of high school sometimes. And I think the only thing that saved me even in high school was that I wound up going to the high school of music and art and I got to sing my way through high school. And I think if I wasn't able to sing my way through high school, and they were mostly folk songs, that I'm not sure I would have even thought about going to college. So it was a, not a straight road for me and not a clear line for me that that's where I was going to wind up but did wind up at Berkeley, which nurtured every rebellious instinct I had, uh, which was a good thing. And then, like I said, NYU Law School, I decided to do because it had a women's prison clinic. Mm -hmm. And I saw the word women, and I didn't see that in a lot of law school catalogs. And I thought, okay, so there's this clinic, and it's just devoted to women. And the fact that it said prison was almost irrelevant at the time, because I was going to be able to go work with women. And I could spend my second year in law school doing that, and it was one of the reasons I looked at NYU so seriously and was lucky enough to get in. Well, if you're pulling for the underdog, these are the days where you've got to pull for women. i got to tell you that much. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what barriers to success? I mean, we, this is, I know that obstacles must be your bread and butter, especially as a rebel. Have you encountered specifically as a woman in the public defense field? This, I mean, it seems like this is an area that's cut out for a rebel. It is. You know, when I graduated from law school in 1982, most of the public defenders that I knew, most of the public defenders I I worked for in internships, most of the public defenders I interviewed with for jobs were men. And uh, there were very few women in positions of leadership in the public defender world in 1982. There might be a supervisor or two who was a woman, but most of the heads of all the offices were men. Most of the sort of leadership in public defender offices were men. Most of the supervisors were men. And so I was entering this field that I was very aware of the fact that it was wildly dominated by men. I was so driven to work in the criminal justice system and so driven to defend the clients who I thought were being not just ensnared in the system, but ground up and destroyed in the system, that I sort of overlooked that and stepped into it anyway. But I do remember as a young lawyer trying desperately to figure out what my sort of persona was in the public defender Mm. world. And I remember very clearly that early in my career, there was lots of conversation within the public defender offices that I worked in about the trial lawyers and the handholders. That was the sort of division that people talked about. And people would talk about, oh, she's she's a, she's a really good lawyer. She's like one of the handholder lawyers. And then there were the trial lawyers. And almost all the trial lawyers were men, specifically white men. And it was a very particular style of lawyering. Don't get me wrong. They were tremendous trial lawyers. They were talented and dedicated and gifted and and 100% in the work. But I couldn't figure out how I was going to look like that, right? It, so the trial lawyers were the litigators who just went in and they just took on the facts of the case and fought the case. And the handholders were the tended kind of to be the women. 
and they were the ones who kind of like step by step paid attention to the clients. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to write off the trial lawyers right, and say right, they right. weren't paying no, attention to the I clients, but the, but the focus is really different. And mm-hmm. the model of what does it mean to be a public defender was felt extraordinarily male to me. And mm-hmm. so I spent a lot of years as a young public defender drinking a lot of whiskey at night at bars with other public <laughs> defenders, stomping around, being really loud, cursing as often as I could, and being fearless and sort of replicating that sort of very macho, for all the good reasons, right? All that sort of badass I'm pushing against the system, but it felt really, really male to me. And, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it took a while for me to figure out my own voice. Right. And so and my own and feeling comfortable in my own skin. And what does it mean when you're a public defender in what was then really wildly dominated by men on the bench in the public defender community, in the prosecutor's office? How do you find your voice that's powerful and effective, but isn't trying to imitate something I can't be? And to bring in a little bit of that feminine energy into the process. And to look at this work in a broader, more complex way. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that, you know, I may think that women are more complex thinkers. I guess I do. It's a bias I have. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And are able to look at both sort of the client piece and how do you work with clients in this broader way and not sacrifice that tough, strong, powerful trial lawyer either, right, that you could do both. And I think that's something women have brought into the field the more and more women have come into the field. Um, And I'm sure some men public defenders will be offended by that. And I'm sorry. I know that there are men who could bring both those things in. Of course. But I think the the fact that more and more women have come into the field of public defense, that more and more women are leaders in public defense, that offices are now being run by women, has actually helped support the notion that this work is – about the clients and the complex issues that our clients come in with and provided space for social work to really be engaged in informing a lot of the work that we do, mitigation experts being involved in the work that we do, um, and to think more broadly about what does it mean to be a public defender beyond just being a fantastic trial lawyer, which is obviously an essential element to being a good public defender. It's so interesting that you came into this field, into this profession, wanting to talk about, think about women. And yet, when it came down to it, the ideas, the masculinity, the traits, the ideas of being fierce and almost guy-like seemed to be like what you almost had to fight against in order to find your voice. And I'd say first I accommodated it, and then I imitated it, and then I found my own voice. And that was my process. And one of the things that I really committed myself to doing when Mm. I started the Bronx Defenders was to allow... A different model, right, to develop. Not just a different model in terms of representation for clients. Clearly, there was a new model being developed, right, and as time went on, sort of continuing to be developed, but also to find lanes for women, for people of color, for people that are from impacted communities, for people that didn't come from families that are lawyers, right, to find their own voices and to find their own way of talking about both the issue but also doing representation. So I I like to think that we took... We took this opportunity to redefine how you do public defense in a broader, more complex way, but we also provided opportunities for the non-traditional candidates to come into this work. Um, and to the extent that whether that was women or whether it was people of color or was people from low-income communities or whatever that was that we allowed for something that looked different, that sounded different, and was equally effective, um, but that people could be comfortable in their own shoes and in their own skin and bring their own experience to the work, and that that would have its own source of power. Um, So we have public defenders in my office who you might describe in the world as being quiet and soft-spoken, who are the most powerful courtroom people I've ever seen. Um, And you have some very loud, very dominant voices who are incredibly powerful courtroom lawyers as well. But those things can coexist and you can find ways for people to be equally powerful being consistent with who they are. And I think that one thing I've learned, if anything else, is that juries can smell genuineness. Um, That when you stand up in front of a jury and you're trying a case on behalf of a client, that you have to be who you are. You can't pretend to be somebody different. Um, When you come to a relationship with a client, you have to be who you are and own who you are, right? And sometimes that means owning your privilege. Sometimes 
Sometimes that means owning your race. Sometimes that means owning the way you interact with clients. You know, whatever it is, you have to be able to sort of recognize who you are, come to terms with it, have an insight about it, own it, and then you will have more legitimacy both with the clients that you're representing, but also with juries and in in courtrooms across the country. Um, And so it's not about trying to be somebody else. It's about being exactly who you are and bringing what that is to the table. If I could inject one thing into law students, it would probably be that, is just to figure out who you are and lead from where you are. There's a there's a great business book whose authors now uh, totally escape me, which is a bit of a sin on my part, uh, called The Beautiful Constraint. Hmm. And that really is about the notion that we figure out what it is that's our, I, you could say our vice, our failing, mm-hmm. and you leverage it. Yeah. And you use it. Yeah. And you find a way to make it your selling point. And if it is to be quiet, and if it is to be that introverted planner, use that right. and maximize it. Exactly. I mean, we teach young trial lawyers that the, one of the most powerful techniques you can use as a trial lawyer is silence. That when you're, when you're speaking and you don't feel like you're getting through, if you just stop talking for a moment and there's dead silence in the courtroom, everybody turns to pay attention. Right. That's a lesson that you have to learn in a different way than the sort of traditional model of what it looks and feels like to be an aggressive trial lawyer. And so I I think it's been a really nice evolution and it's been great to watch more people coming into the field who bring different perspectives and different experiences and different personalities and different character traits and different strengths and weaknesses so that actually everybody sort of learns from each other and effective advocates look and sound really different than the sort of traditional public defender idea that I had in my head when I became a public defender in 1982. Wow. You mentioned people of color. I've always been, I don't know if sheepish is the right word, but wary, certainly, um, as a white woman mm-hmm. um, for uh, on the issue of approaching race. It feels like sometimes that I uh, my rights are, they have limits. And I, I, I've come to terms with that in my own way as mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of have just dealt with that, my own subversiveness, I think. But the confluence of gender and race, especially at this incredibly heated time in our world, immigration, other national issues. You, we see uh, young men, black men taking taking a knee on the football field that you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, it touches us Just all. Just makes me love football more. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the confluence of gender and race is a hot one. Can you talk a little bit about your views on that? So, you know, I think it's interesting and, and looking through the lens of sort of my views on those things as a public defender, and I'll sort of talk about that since that's really what I'm here to talk about, right? Which is you have these two things going on in the criminal justice system right now, right? So it has always been the case since I've been a public defender that the apparatus of the criminal justice system has always been targeted at low-income communities of color disproportionately. Um, So you could not look at the criminal justice system, whether it was 1982 or it's 1997 or it's 2017, and not recognize right away that there is structural racism in the criminal justice system. And if you move that back, that is only a reflection of policing. And if you move that back, that is only a reflection of the agency we give to police to target those communities, right? And so when you you cannot deny that sort of race is the thing that is driving, you know, policing to who gets ensnared of the criminal justice system to what the collateral consequences are. And the gross disproportionality of particularly men of color in the criminal justice system is something that's undeniable. What has been happening that is getting far less attention, although this year I'm beginning to hear more and more about it, is for the past 10 years, the fastest growing population in jails and prisons across this country are women. Hmm. So while incarceration rates for men is decreasing, incarceration rates for women across this nation continues to rise. And so women are becoming more and more in, you know, ensnared into the criminal justice system. And so that's really interesting to think about sort of why is that happening, what's happening, um, and why don't you hear these conversations happening? Why aren't we hearing more and more about it? Now, like I said, this past six months, I've heard a lot of conversations. The Atlantic just did a bunch of work on it, and um, some other media outlets are beginning to really focus on this. And of course, there have always been people focusing on this, but there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to it. And I think that's not to say one replaces the other, right? Clearly not. But there has to be a conversation also about what's happening to women in the criminal justice system. Um, so when you ask about where gender and race and how those both those things play, I'm looking at it through the criminal justice 
else's lens Mm -hmm. and saying, well, traditionally this has been, you know, a place where predominantly men of color have been ensnared, but now we're seeing this dramatic rise in uh, women's incarceration rates and women becoming involved in the criminal justice system, and we need to pay attention to it. Is it in any particular area, immigration, drugs? So it's criminal justice generally. So in in the criminal courthouses, in the you know bookings, in the jails and prisons across this country, the numbers of women are growing and growing. Oklahoma is the ground zero women's incarceration. So they incarcerate more women than any place in the country, which means than in the world. But but the rest of the states in this country are not immune from that accusation because it is it is a trend that's everywhere. It's just that that's the place where it's most obvious and the numbers are biggest, which is why we launched our project Still She Rises a year ago there. So we have now now created the first ever public defender office dedicated exclusively to the representation of women in the criminal justice system. And we're beginning to really dig deep into what does it mean to be a woman and get arrested? And what, what does a- it mean to be a woman and get arrested? So it means that from virtually every stage of the criminal justice system, it's the system is sort of designed to both ensnare, surveil, supervise, and then incarcerate men. And so there is ways of interacting with people that are being arrested and then booked into the system um, that have been dictated by men. So when you start asking your question about what does it mean when you handcuffs go on and you're arrested and thrown into a police car and then you're searched, mm-hmm. what is that experience like um, for men for, and for women, how does it differ if it does? Uh, and I don't, by in any means, you know, want to imply that that is an experience that men, you know, don't find to be appalling as well they do. But when you also look at the numbers and you recognize that the majority of women who are coming into the criminal justice system, their numbers would reflect, have been the victims of um, either intimate domestic violence or sexual assault. What is that experience like for them? right, to be searched by a police officer when they're being arrested, right? And how does that differ? So we're looking at issues right from the very beginning all the way through to what are the collateral consequences for women that might differ for men. And certainly not every in every case, but the majority of women are custodial parents. And many of them are custodial parents alone of children. And so what does it mean for them when they're arrested and their children are removed from them? And what impact does that have on them? What impact does it have on the children? What impact does it have on families? What impact does it have on generations? Just like you need to look at what impact does it have to remove men from communities entirely, mm-hmm. right? And have families, you know, being raised with men in prison. Um, those are, those all have devastating consequences, not just for individuals and families and communities. But the experience, I think, for women is distinct from men. And we've done very, very little to really think about it through different lenses. And I think we need to start doing that. And so Still She Rises is our attempt to begin that process. And it's located in Oklahoma where the rates are so high. Uh, We're also looking at racial disparity, right? So we have set this office up in North Tulsa, which is the predominantly and historically African-American community. And we're beginning to really ask those questions, too, about where the racial disparities, how does it differ for black women versus white women? But it's an area that I think needs to be really looked at as women are the fastest growing population. We're talking about an area where we are basically doubling down on a system that's already broken. Well, it depends on your view, right? So I, my view of the criminal justice system is it's not broken. My view of the criminal justice system, it was created to do exactly what it's doing. Mm. And so, you know, I, I know people talk about it as a broken thing. Okay. I, I would call it an appalling, devastating apparatus of governmental oppression, I'm not sure that I would call it broken since I so think it was it's designed doing what it's to be that. To do this. Yeah, it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. You know, I started my career thinking that all of those conversations huh. that I had with clients who saw a mass conspiracy, um, that somehow clients were missing the point. And then the more that I went on and the years that I spent in the criminal justice system, the more that I recognized that all clients were really ever trying to teach me was that there are structural and institutional racism that's going on and classism that goes on. And it is deeply, deeply embedded in the criminal justice system. And one might argue that the criminal justice system is, in fact, the apparatus that gets used um, to continue in pre- oppression and monitoring and control and supervision over both people of color and low-income people in this country. And that has been an evolution for me over the years. Um, and I'm grateful to clients and, and to communities for having taught me that, because I think when I went into the work, it felt more individual to me. And I recognized individual needs, individual 
experiences that led people into the system did not really look at because it is not the community I come from. I'm not from an impacted community. Mm -hmm. um, Didn't look at this as this was a structural intention. There's intentionality here. Right. Um, And I guess I come 35 years later to be more radical than I was. It's funny to me. People say you get older and you get less radical. And I think, no, No. actually, (laughs) the more you're in the criminal justice system, the longer that you're there, I don't understand how you don't become more radicalized um, and how you don't begin to see more clearly uh, the institutional nature of what we're doing and the structural racism that exists in the criminal justice system. And so, you know, that's that's what you So you don't see it as broken. You see it more as this is a tool of the hegemony that maintains the system. I do. And I see it as something that needs to be completely re-envisioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, young people like to use the word dismantled. You mm-hmm. know, I think it's something that needs to be literally taken apart and thought. Reconstructed. Right. And mm-hmm. thought over again. Um, and so that is how I see it. I appreciate and respect incremental change that people are doing. I do. It makes complete sense to me. You know, a lot of change is going to be slow. A lot of it's going to be incremental. But we have to get at the core, you know, at what's going on underneath it all. It's, you know, people, you can look at policing and you can make policing, you know, a big part of those reform movements. But to not recognize that policing is in some sense a reflection of society sort of demonizes the police as the only actors in this rather than the fact that they are acting upon what I think they think the beliefs of the society are. Um, And that's a much harder conversation to have and a much more complicated conversation to have and one that's, you know, painful, but I think it's going on more and more. And I do think it is making its way into the, you know, consciousness of this country. I do think that criminal justice and the quote unquote broken nature of the system, that's fine. If people Mm -hmm. see it as a broken nature, that may be easier to think about fixing it. Well, it's definitely the label that I maybe cavalierly put on it because it feels, I mean, my naivete, actually, it feels in a way comfortable, uh, more comfortable, not comfortable, but more comfortable to say that. Although at the same time, I would have a conversation with a cop and I would know like on a one-to-one basis, this is somebody who's incredibly well-intentioned, wants to go home to his or her family, does not see, doesn't experience his or her personal racism, in fact, may have, may be a person of color or may have a partner who's a person of color and is equally mystified by the system. And so for me to cavalierly say that the system is broken is, in fact, uh, too casually said. So I appreciate that kind of reconfiguring of that. I mean, look, I think, you know, I think it's complicated and painful for all of us who come from privilege and who are white to recognize that this system has, you know, wreaked incredible havoc on people of color and poor people and communities of color across this country and to own our peace in that um, and to own our own sense of um, how we've benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Those are hard and painful, I think, realizations to to accept. Um and that doesn't mean people need to be paralyzed by guilt, um, but it means you need to recognize your role in it. And it's the conversation you need to have with every client, right? It's the conversation you need to have that you're in about the work you're doing, right? Which is you are you are fighting every day in a system that was probably designed to advantage you, um, if you look like me, or me, right? And yeah. but that but that you can fight, and I've always believed this that you can fight with all of your might against that system and no matter what your cause is. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have always thought that. I've always thought, you know, people who you can be rich and fight for the poor, you can be, you know, transgendered and decide that you are the cause that brings the most passion to you is fighting for the rights of, of, you know, physically challenged people. It could be that you decide that what you want to do is is work in the school system. Whatever the cause is, I don't think you have to come from that community to be a credible warrior in that fight, but you do need to recognize, right, that if you're not from that community that's being impacted, you need to recognize those differences, although I think you can be as powerful an advocate as anybody. It's scary. It's a scary thing to speak up. Um, I think that it's a lumpy process. I I was going to actually ask you about this. You and your organization weathered a a very public storm a few years ago, and it would be, uh, I would be a dope if I didn't bring this up, actually your involvement with a hip-hop video. I know it became, as you would say, a huge learning experience. I hate using the word huge anymore. I take that back. Um, a valuable <laughs> a valuable learning experience, especially, I mean, we've talked about this, what it means to be as white women, 
speaking up. I never know when to speak up. How do you know when to speak up? Can you talk a little bit about that and about what you learned about that process? Yeah, I mean, there were so many things that, you know, I learned from that experience and was clearly one of the most painful experiences uh, sort of of my professional life and I think for the entire organization. You know, I learned more about what it means to be in the crosshairs of the police than Mm -hmm. I probably ever did in my life as a public defender. Um, And that was sort of an interesting experience to have and one that I wouldn't want to repeat. And it is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what I understand the fear and, um, and the devastation that happens when you're actually looking at being put into a cage and have your freedom taken away and your family taken away. So I don't mean to equate those things. But the experience that was similar that I now understand at a much more visceral level is that no matter how hard we tried to shift the narrative about what had happened, and what the truth was and what our involvement really was and was not and the ways that we did and did not protect ourselves and the things we were attempting to do and not attempting to do, we had absolutely no power to shift that narrative. And the narrative that just kept being out there in the world that was being pushed in all sorts of corners was an experience I, you know, I'm used to being able to use my voice and shift the narrative back and it was impossible. We were stuck in the middle of a perfect storm and... I began to think afterwards, this is what it must feel like to be a client Mm -hmm. and to be arrested and to have people talk about you in a way that you know has nothing to do with with either who you are or what you believe or what you were attempting to do. And you can't get that message out because all everybody does when you're arrested in the system is they put your picture up on the website or up on television. They demonize you, right? They they look at you through this one one narrow lens and that narrative is very hard to shift. Um, and I've spent my whole life trying to change that narrative on behalf of individual clients and most of my career trying to shift that that narrative about communities that we represent. And there we were caught in this perfect storm and we couldn't shift the narrative. And that was an experience of powerlessness that I admit was new and frightening and incredibly, yes, educational in, in that way um, of what it feels like when you can't get people to hear who you really are. And I think back to every single client that ever said, you know, but I'm a really good son, but I'm an amazing granddaughter, but I'm an incredible teacher, but, 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 why can't the system see that about me? There we were, and we were being seen through a particular lens from people who had a particular political agenda, and we just had to fight our way through it and try to preserve ourselves and and the organization that we grew and that has you know served so many people we by estimate probably quarter of a million people in the and Bronx continue community to. and we continue to and it was uh, there were a lot of things to learn there were a lot of things to learn about police power there were a lot of things to learn about um, who stands with you and who doesn't mm-hmm. boy that was a hard lesson right who stands by you at your worst moment and again i thought back to my client my clients i thought wow that must be what it's like when you get arrested who stands with you and who doesn't stand with you and we certainly saw people that had been supporters that that were silent uh, others who were magnificent and wonderful and stood up and spoke out and, and spoke stood up. by us um, but if i ever needed to relearn the lesson of how important it is to have people stand by your side at your worst moment when whether you've done it or not done it at the worst moment when there's a huge system coming after you that just reinforced what I sort of always knew to be the case and and I hope that I spend the rest of my life standing next to people in those situations because I know how deeply I needed it and uh, we needed it as an organization and how grateful we are to the people that stood by us and helped us fight our way through this and to come out on the other side of it. One of the things I love about this story is that you turned an obstacle into really such a beautiful gift And that has the capacity, I mean, you have the capacity to think metaphorically and to find actually the, it's not, it's more than a nugget. I mean, you, obviously you can't get the smoke back in the can once it's, once it's out there, but to turn that into something really incredibly useful and something that you'll use the rest of your life. I've had things that have happened to me and I think this is the worst thing ever. And then looking back, I think, I, you know, that was useful. And that's a hard, grainy thing to get through. Mm -hmm. It is a hard, grainy thing to get through. And I can't say that I'm glad that, you know, the organization had to go through it or that I had to go through it or my colleagues, uh, some of whom lost more than certainly than I did, had to go through. 
but you know it it was about fighting back and pushing through and not giving up and that's not to say that there weren't moments that I didn't lock my door at night and get under the covers and think I'm just not coming out right. I'm just not coming out I mean I'm gonna grow know, up in a ball right and now and I'm just gonna and I'm not gonna come out and then I would get up the next day and somebody would show up at my doorstep and a friend would bring you know a bottle of wine or somebody would come visit or somebody would call and say uh, I'm coming over and I'd say no no don't come over and they'd say yeah and then they just show up on your doorstep anyway right. that's about you just show up me and, me and this Ben and Jerry's, uh, we're gonna we're gonna come over yeah, and hang out with you. Yeah. You've been doing this work, um, the Bronx Defenders, for twenty years. Twenty years, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Standing by the sides of members of our society who need it the most, how do you, other than occasionally crawling under the covers with a bottle of wine or a, a <laughs> pint of Ben and Jerry's, how do you keep it together? You know, I um, this is hellacious work. It's not. That's the thing. (laughs) This work is not hellacious work. The system is hellacious. What it does to people is hellacious. Jail cells are hellacious. Systems of prosecution are hellacious. Judges can be hellacious. This work is not hellacious, right? This work is a privilege, and I mean that. Mm -hmm. This work is life-affirming in ways you can't possibly imagine. I mean, if you want to do work where you feel relevant, and you recognize that what you're doing is important, and you get to spend every day searching for people's humanity and fighting for it when everybody else is attempting to dehumanize somebody, it is the most life-affirming, perspective-giving job you could possibly have, and I have always found that to be incredibly energizing and uplifting. And so, you know, people are always like, oh, you've made such sacrifices. And I always say, my work has never been a sacrifice. I don't feel like I've ever done anything where I have sacrificed. People around me sacrifice a lot. I mean, my kids sacrificed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, my, you know, husband sacrificed a lot. Friends and family and people around us sacrifice to allow us to do this work and to allow us to sort of be our best selves in this work. But this work is not a sacrifice and there's nothing hellacious about it. It's a gift and I've always considered it a gift. That doesn't mean that you don't get unbelievably frustrated by um, the systems and you don't get unbelievably frustrated by what happens to your clients and your heart doesn't break. It does. But you recognize also that it's not happening to you. It's happening to your clients. And, you know, you're the front line of defense and you just Mm -hmm. don't get to give up. You just don't get to give up. And how do you not absorb it? How do you not take it home? I mean, you talk about the, the weight of this. You have to have a certain amount of porosity, right? You have to be able to take on with some empathy and compassion your clients, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is really individual. Mm-hmm. You know, I have seen people who take this work to heart and work really hard and engage with clients in meaningful ways and hear their stories and elevate their pain and fight for them in court and they go home and they find ways at home to feel more comfortable and nurtured right and supported and People talk about work-life balance. I'm not a work-life balance person. Right. Never I have bunk been. Myself. <laughs> I don't. I don't even understand the concept. So that's never been what drives me. But I recognize that it does for some people, and I can appreciate that and respect that. Right? For me, it's about if you really get to know your clients, all you want to do is fight. Like all you want to do is stand up and scream. All you want to do is question what's happening to them, and and I find that to be incredibly energizing. Um, being with fabulous colleagues that can hold you up in those moments that are most painful mm-hmm. or most frightening or most devastating. That's really important to, to work in an environment with people that you really like and care about. So that's a collaborative effort and recognize it's not just you. Yeah. And to take in, you know, if just by virtue of the fact that you're a lawyer doing this work, right, if you don't take in from that some sense of gratitude for where you are in life and the privilege that you have, right, then you're missing something even bigger, right? Um, And I think that sort of sustains you too. And when it stops sustaining you and it's overwhelmed you and and it's painful and you feel like what you want to do is just give up, it's time to leave. And that's okay too, 
right? It's, you know, for some of us, we can stay in it forever. I personally think it's because I can compartmentalize feelings like there's nobody tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing. And, and you're the psychologist, too. You, you can tell me. But I <laughs> if can, you can do it, Godspeed. I can put it in a box and put it up on a closet so mm-hmm. that I can get up and do it again. Now, that's me. And, and I'm not necessarily recommending that that's a terrific strategy. Well, and part but it's of what you're works. describing, there's two things that you're describing that's incredible. Mm-hmm. One is that you have work that's meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. So I, let me just retract in a mighty way the notion that you're doing anything that's hellacious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, it, it, I, <laughs> no, I, I that's what most people say about it. I think that it is true that you're, you're bucking a hellacious system, but it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And there is incredible research there that shows that people want to do work that's meaningful. Right. And you're doing work that's meaningful. There's also evidence that shows that it can grind you down if you don't compartmentalize. So that's why I say Godspeed. If you can do it, yeah. you can do it. Yeah. I mean, um, look, it's not it's not for everybody. And I think everybody comes up with their own strategy, right? Some people raise puppies and some people are... <laughs> I work with one woman who's a marathon runner and right. she's amazing, right? And right. I see how painful she finds Absolutely. what's happening to her clients, but she gets out there and she runs another five miles, right? So people find the ways they can to make it possible for them to get up the next day. But for me, compartmentalization worked. Well, that's one thing. But you also mentioned another another thing that social psychologists say works really well, and that's gratitude. Mm-hmm. And bizarrely, that's that like they say one minute every day before you go to sleep or one minute every day before when you wake up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the old mystics used to say that, you know, you spend a minute in prayer or you spend a minute in meditation. If you spend a minute just having that recognition that, wow, I have a good life. You do. The, the other thing is, you know, when you work in marginalized communities like I have, whether it's in the South Bronx or whether it's in the North Tulsa community, it's easy to fall into the perspective that these are communities that have nothing but deficits. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to focus on there's the schools aren't good and this isn't good. And if you shift your lens to take in the entire picture, and you also spend time in communities and you look and you say, wow, this community has also created family and love and cohesion and faith and resiliency. You can see that, right? And that's another perspective building thing to understand, right? Is if people can do that in those circumstances, Really, I'm going to complain about the fact that I go home to my Upper West Side apartment and I feel sad. (laughs) You you know, it just... Get over yourself. You need to take it all in to really understand where you are in the world, I think. Well, you've referred to something then, um, and we we started this out, so it's bringing you a full circle, a holistic defense. I'm a psychologist. I grew up with Fritz Perls and the idea of gestalt therapy which is really the the notion that the environmental and social contexts of a person's life, they self-regulate and make adjustments Mm -hmm. to their lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think of the gestalt, and I love it that you're thinking of a holistic defense. Can you talk a little bit about that before we're done? Sure. I mean, you know, holistic defense is, is a particular model of public defense, and it is designed to look at both what the issues are that are driving people into the criminal justice system. And some of those are individual and personal, but lots of those are structural. Um, what's driving them into the system, and then once they're in the system, defending them obviously on the criminal case, but also to look beyond the criminal case and understand what are the collateral consequences of this arrest and this potential conviction. Robin, what's going to happen? Know, I'm going to interrupt you here. Sure. You know, you sound a lot like a psychologist or a social worker. <laughs> well, <laughs> just maybe, so you know, maybe in another life I might have been a social worker. I could see that in me. <laughs> but you know, you, you you need to look at so where is where is the damage happening outside that criminal case? Like mm-hmm. the obvious, you know, are we going to wind up in a cage or not in a cage? Is the most obvious, you know, thing to look at on a criminal case, and that's where public defenders have traditionally, you know, put their attention on the liberty interests of a client. But if you don't look beyond that, you will lose the picture and you will lose the perspective from the client's shoes. And here's what I mean by that. You can lose your children to the foster care system if you get incarcerated. You can lose your home where you raised your family if you get arrested. You can lose your immigration status and be deported to a country you haven't been in since you were a child because you got arrested. You can lose whatever public benefits you have. You can lose your potential to get federal financial aid to go to college. There are a host of collateral consequences that go far beyond the original criminal case and even liberty interests. And here's the part that was really the most hard for me to come to terms with. 
I always thought as a young public defender, well, nothing could be more serious than your liberty interest. What could be worse than being put in a jail cell? Until I started to imagine, well, what if my choice was to spend time in jail or lose my kids? Right. Or what if my choice was to spend time in jail or to wind up being deported to a country? I don't even speak the language. Or what if my, right? And to think about that in a totally different way. And I could imagine that sometimes liberty is not even the most important interest a person has. Right? How would you choose between, well, I'll go to jail or lose my kids? Well, maybe I'd rather go to jail than lose my kids. Right? Choices no people should have to make. Nobody should have to make those choices. But we have a criminal justice system that is that draconian and that harsh, where we have decided that it is not just enough to give somebody a criminal record. It's not just enough to put them in jail. We actually have attached to that process collateral consequences that happen outside the criminal justice system. And if you're not doing holistic defense and you're not providing counsel and representation in those other areas that are impacted by an arrest, you lose, A, the bigger picture, but you also deny your client the ability to decide what's the most important thing to them, right? Where if we have to make a sacrifice in this justice system or criminal system, as I think I prefer to call it at this point, Mm -hmm. the justice has kind of fallen out of it. Um, You know, what decision making do clients have to make? But if you're a public defender not advising your clients about those other collateral consequences, people are making decisions in a vacuum and you might be doing more harm than good. So that great criminal disposition you got on that criminal case where you shook your client's hand and said, great job, we got a good criminal disposition on this case, you're not going to do any time, now go home, but failed to understand that they were going to lose their home or be deported or wind up in the, in, in the family court system at risk of losing their children because of the criminal conviction, you have in some ways put your client in harm's way, although not intentionally. Um, but that's where holistic defense really grew out of, right, was the recognition that both people are coming into the system for all sorts of reasons that need to be looked at and examined, but also that there's all this other sort of collateral damage that happens that needs to be addressed and representation needs to be um, accessed, right? And defense needs to be had for people like that in those situations. And that's what holistic defense, sort of the core of it is. Um, So it is a actual model of doing public defense in a much broader way. It's Um, a very practical approach to looking at the individual. That's basically saying we're looking at the whole system rather than the set of individual parts. And I would argue that it's not a luxury. I would argue that it's fundamental to what public defenders are responsible and obligated to do. Mm. Right? It is It is simply not enough to focus just on the criminal case. Um, it because you will put your client in harm's way and you know the Supreme Court ruled in Padilla that there are collateral consequences and public defenders are responsible for at minimum counsel in those areas. We do more at the Bronx Defenders. We actually provide representation um, and and defense in all those other areas that we find our clients struggling against larger systems. Not very many defense systems are supplying this kind of holistic support. Uh, not yet, but more and more it's happening. I think um, young law students are coming out of law school asking their offices why they're not doing more holistic defense. More and more offices are moving in that direction. And so I think there is a, a good movement in that direction and has been for a while. Um, we've done a lot of training with public defenders across the country who are very energized at the idea of moving beyond just the criminal case and focusing just on the criminal case to also providing representation in those other arenas. And look, as the consciousness shifts in this country, which I think it is about criminal justice, and criminal justice reform continues to march forward, uh, which I hope continues to do for a long time, um, I think these conversations become ripe for conversation with government funders who fund public defense to also think about, you know, funding what's inherent in public defense, which are these other areas of representation and counsel that we should be providing to clients. I talk to lots of lawyers, and I don't often have this feeling, but when I'm sitting here talking to you, it makes me want to go to law school. <laughs> well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> and I'm old. I wasn't particularly in love with law school, but I'm glad you like the results. <laughs> I'm thinking, damn, this woman is doing really cool things. A Beautiful Constraint, by the way, written by Adam Morgan and Mark Barden. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah, thank you. I typically end our conversation with this question. Thinking back to the beginning of law school, what advice would you give to your one self? I love that you're really sturdy now when you look back on your subversive little self who didn't go to classes, (laughs) who went to law school but didn't go to class. What would you say to her now? I'd say to her now, go to class and fight back. Yeah, speak Um, up. Speak up. 
and and find your fellow students who are feeling the same way and speak up if it's if it is feeling as if it's harmful just speak up find your voice speak up don't you don't need to go home and not go to class so i would tell my one old person stay in class and speak up more I think I would also tell my 1L self, and this is going to sound um, less subversive and less radical, but I have to say that I was very quick to write off lots of my fellow students who didn't want to go into um, what I considered social justice work. And I had a very narrow view of what that meant and what Mm -hmm. that looked like. And I have to say that starting an organization and growing an organization, I have come to really appreciate the kinds of support that people in law firms can give to your organization and your clients, Uh, the kinds of support that local elected officials give to your clients and to your organization. And I wrote that off because I was really judgmental in those early years about the importance of that. And I would say to my 1L person now, you know, keep those relationships, find those people that actually might go in a different path than you go, but are good people with big hearts who care deeply about fairness and justice, who you then might be able to partner with later on, even if they've gone in a different direction. I wouldn't include prosecutors in that, but I would include (laughs) almost everybody else. Um, I I don't think I'm ever going to find myself on that side where I feel like somebody who decides to work on behalf of the system, putting people in cages, um, are people that I necessarily think that I would reach out to, even in my 1L self, if I were to talk to myself now. Um, But I think to have that perspective, which is hard to have when you're young and you're you're fighting against a law school generally that is, you know, pushing young people towards law firms and clerkships. And so I would certainly tell my 1L self that. And I would probably tell my 1L self that while you're reading those individual cases and you're reading the case law that to try to keep in mind the larger structural systems at play Mm -hmm. there weren't back then and I know there are way more now at NYU Law School and other law schools professors willing to engage in conversations about sort of the underlying structural reasons that these cases go the way they go but I certainly didn't have that perspective in law school and I thought it really was all about precedent I would tell my 1L self now you have to learn about precedent because you have to put it on the exams but it really has almost nothing to do with precedent right right that in fact it's about power and politics and race and class and gender and and that (laughs) heavy hand of history isn't that heavy (laughs) exactly and that's what's underlying a lot of those those decisions and that case law that looks so pure um and i would i would tell my one else self that to understand that early on Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very much like the way my clients have taught me that this isn't about individuals in the system. It, it is, of course, representing individuals, but that the story isn't about individuals. The story is in large measure about um, structural and institutional issues that we have and racism that we have and, and the way that we treat certain segments of our population and society and um, how we treat those that are most marginalized. What would your one else self think of you now? I could not have in a million years imagined that I would have started and run an organization like the Bronx Defenders. And so I think my 1L self would be like, wow, you actually did that. You did it. Yeah, you actually did that. And I'm when I see that, I'm also really, really conscious that I did that on the shoulders of lots and lots of people. Yeah. And I did that locking arms and hands with lots and lots of people. And I did that by mining some of the smartest brains that have ever been on the planet. And by that, I mean the over 700 people that have come through our doors at the Bronx Defenders, and they all make me look good. But you know, to the extent that I was able to harness all that, um, I guess my one else self would be good for you that you're able to harness all of that and maybe make a difference and maybe make... Uh, conversation about justice in this country move forward. Um, and somebody once told me, and I really believe this, which is that if it, I don't by any means think that my job is done, my work is done, justice has been had, the public defender system is is much better. Um, and even if there is a changing narrative about criminal justice, but somebody once told me that if you if you're thinking about the problem that you're attacking, and you think there's a solution in your lifetime, and you're not thinking big enough that there were people fighting this fight that came before me and there will be generations of people that will fight this fight after me and that if you're thinking that you're solving a problem, you're not thinking about the problem big enough. And to be okay with that, right? To be okay with your moment in time that you fought your fight but that there will be lots of people that come after you and there were lots of people that came before you upon whose shoulders you stand and that that's an important perspective to hold on to. You're one little cog in this. What about your 11-year-old self? It's really easy for me to see your 11-year-old self 
going off to Washington to protest the Vietnam War. She expected greatness from you, you know. My 11-year-old self just rebelled against anything that looked like authority. Yeah. And I have to be honest, I don't think that's changed in me. <laughs> I, I am deeply, inherently skeptical of authority. And it doesn't mean I don't respect authority. I do when it's earned. Mm-hmm. But but sort of unearned respect of authority is never going to be my way. And I think my 11-year-old self, um, I would have thought she would have developed to not just push back against authority. But I think, in fact, that that tendency in me has become even greater. But I do think that my 11, I would tell my 11-year-old self if I looked at her now and she looked at me now, I'd say, but be aware that people that want to support you and help you and work with you and guide you along the way is broader than you think it is. And again, like I would tell my 1L self, um, to keep your mind open that there are lots of people out there that actually are trying to do good and sometimes they don't know how and make it easier for them to do it. And that... That the my probably my eleven year old self was was more guided just by fury and anger, mm-hmm. and that fury and anger still drive me, but so does love and unity, and that those things sometimes can come together, um, which I do think probably in my youth. I focused way less on the love and unity part and far more on the anger and fury part. And I think those things can coexist. And I think I didn't think they could at eleven, but I think they can at sixty. I think that you're embodying that. And if nothing else, today I'm going to go home and I'm going to find my recalcitrant little granddaughter who wants to wear her hoodie backwards. And I'm going to give her a big hug. And buy her a new hoodie and tell her to wear that one backwards too. (laughs) And wear the stripes upside down if she wants to. And uh, really, really... um, on behalf of the institution, I'm proud that you are bucking authority and fighting the structures that don't work for us thank and looking that. for new ways to to make things work. Well, thank you. And, I, you know, look, in some weird, very strange way, um, and I've said this before in lots of places, I am deeply indebted to NYU Law School because I have 100% I know that having a credential from a law school like NYU opened up doors for me and paths for me that I never, ever, ever would have been able to venture down. And for that, I am eternally grateful. So it's it's a two-way street. Well, thanks for talking today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership. Music